Hello, you cool cats and kittens. Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. And if you don't know what I'm referring to there with the cool cats and kittens, go and watch the Tiger King. Thank me later, then come back to the podcast. What's going on? Out there, everyone. Hope you're keeping well. Hope you're keeping safe. Hope you're washing your hands. Um, crazy times that we are in. And uh, therefore, today we have a, um, we have a remote podcast. We have a remote podcast, which um, obviously is going to be the norm until we get back to normal jogging and uh, we can go in the studio and, um, yeah, do all that kind of normal stuff. Uh, right. What do I have to say? Go to vsonpodcast.com. Go there, slash vsonpodcast. Go there, click on the tab for books. Uh, today's guest, he is a prolific writer, so all of his books are going to be linked up there. So while you're stuck, while you're locked down, get yourself some books to read and support the show and the show's guests by getting them from vsonpodcast.com slash books. Um, right, today's podcast is made possible in part thanks to Frontier Risk Group, home of the world's leading practical training course in security risk management consultancy. Frontier Risk Group, Frontier Risks Group is an amalgamation of a number of leading companies in their fields guided by a team of equal experience and expertise in their respective domains. From security and crisis management, corporate risk, intelligence analysis, compliance, workplace investigations, trauma response, and training consultancy. Um, don't need me to tell you how important security risk management consultancy is in a time like this. Um, big time of uncertainty. Um, so yes, you need security that you can rely on. Uh, if you're a veteran, guys, you should, um, or if you are looking to transition out of the military, then check out Frontier Risk Group and the course that they run uh, because their students now work as security risk managers, advisors, travel risk managers, security analysts, or sorry, analysts for some of the world's largest organizations such as Netflix, BBC, CNN, Deloitte, BAE Systems, Apple, etc., and many, many more. You can learn more about Frontier Risks Group at FrontierRisks.com. Uh, FrontierRisks.com. Uh, Check them out. So this episode is also brought to you by our good, long-standing friends, Camouflage and Luminary Designs. Camouflage is a special surveillance and investigations company, a brand you can rely on for their professionalism, integrity, and quality of work at all levels. These guys can do anything from looking at people online to going into another country to gather information out on the ground. They can look into the security of your property and even into unlawful partners. Not only do they get amongst it, but camouflage, spelt with a K, are stockets of specialized surveillance, outdoor COVID equipment, and more from the likes of Lawmate, Yukon, TRC Outdoors, and Illuminate Designs. Uh, they have a service for bespoke handmade ghillie suits, vehicle tracking systems. Um, they've got some really cool uh, new kit that they, they're putting out there at the moment. The best place for you to see it is on their, um, is on their social media. If you go to any Veteran State of Mind, um, Veteran State of Mind posts, or tag camouflage in there, and um, Camouflage with a K. Search them, camouflage.co.uk. Again, spelled with a K. Um, check them out. They've got some really alley gear out there. If you're into hunting, if you're in the military, if you're just into stalking people, then they've got um, the stuff for you. So go and check them out. Also want to shout out, as ever, the Royal British Legion. Um, thank you for sponsoring us. Thank you for helping us do what we do. Uh, Royal British Legion, guys, at the moment, they are... Um, Recruiting, is that the right word? Hiring. They are hiring. They are looking for people to join the team. They need people in locations across the company, uh, across the company, across the country, and across, the, uh, well, it's the charity, isn't it? But they need people, is the point. So check out, um, check out RBL, check out RBL.org, and um, check out the Royal, Royal British Legion on social media. Um, if you're looking for a job, what better way to do it? What better place to work than helping out the veterans of this country, um, especially the ones, the elderly who have given so much. So please check them out. All right. So today's guest on the podcast, we have Mr. Leveson Wood. And I'm going to read you his Wikipedia because he's a very impressive bloke. And um, I don't want to miss anything out. So Major Leveson James Wood, born 5th of May, 1982. Now you go, now you know his birthday. As a British Army officer and explorer. He is known for his extended walking expeditions in Africa, Asia, and Central America. Beginning in December 2013, 
Over the course of nine months, he undertook the first ever expedition to walk the entire length of the River Nile from, well, let's just say, I can't pronounce that word, in Rwanda. The expedition was commissioned as a four-part documentary series for Channel 4 in the UK. He also wrote a Sunday Times best-selling book detailing the expedition, Walking the Nile. In 2015, he walked the length of the Himalayas from Afghanistan in the west to Bhutan in the east. A year later, he walked from the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico, where the early Spanish conquistadors landed, to Colombia, a journey of 1,800 miles. Following the spine of Central America, crossing the infamous Darien Gap, his book, Walking the Americas, became a bestseller in the UK and USA. From 2017 to the spring of 2018, he undertook another two journeys. Russia to Iran followed his hitchhiking adventures as a student, retracing his steps from the Black Sea to the Caspian, following the Caucasus Mountains, Caucasus Mountains through the North Caucasian Republics via Azerbaijan, Georgia, Armenia, and Iran. In September 2017, he began his most ambitious challenge to date, a full circumnavigation of the Arabian Peninsula, traveling from Syria through Iraq, the Gulf, crossing part of the empty quarter desert in Oman, traversing Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and the Holy Land to finish in Lebanon, an expedition totaling, wait for it, 5,000 miles. During the course of the journey, he was embedded with Iraqi troops fighting ISIS, where he witnessed the liberation of Shakat and also encountered uh, Palestinian guerrillas and Hezbollah operatives. He visited the city of Palmyra, which I'm really jealous about, uh, which was then under Russian control. He has also undertaken numerous other overland journeys, including a foot crossing of Madagascar and mountain climbing Iraq. Uh, he documents his journeys through books, documentaries, and photography, and now veteran state of mind. Um, and Wikipedia, you need to update yourself because uh, Lev has, um, he's done a lot more since then as well. He, he is uh, an unstoppable force, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about that today. So without further ado, please put your hands together and welcome Leveson Wood. I won't forget it, that feeling of acceptance. I can be the guy that's looking back with knowledge as my weapon. Cause it's inside of you and it's inside of me The real killer in depression is to suffer silently The journey's rough, the road is long You've just got to accept you haven't got to see the whole staircase Just the first Leverson Wood, welcome to the podcast mate, thanks for coming on Thank you very much This Good is the, it's the first remote podcast we've done um, I've, I've been wanting to do them in the studio up until now Just because I felt the, the sound quality is better And then there's an excuse for piss up at the end of it um, but this is at least this is going to, it's going to keep costs down for a while and uh, it works out here out in California at the moment we for anybody listening on all the because we'll be putting this out on audio because uh, we haven't got studio lights to make us look all sexy so I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not doing a video unless I've got the lights um, okay but yeah it's going to be um, it's it's uh, you know probably going to be this this way for a while and um, um, yeah, just thanks for, thanks for coming on, mate. You've got um, a new book out, which is like, it just popped up the other day because I was looking for um, I was looking for new stuff to read, as I'm sure a lot of people are at the moment. Um, and I came across it and I was a bit, I was a bit surprised, to be honest. Like when I saw the, the cover, because I thought, oh, you're branching more, you're branching more out into the wildlife side of, of things. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've done, I've written sort of five books about trips and expeditions my own journeys and um i wrote a kid's book last summer and then um i thought why not look at something from a bit more of a thematic standpoint and i've always been fascinated by conservation uh particularly elephants i mean I, i've been a, an ambassador for a charity called the tusk trust for the past seven years and um oh has it cut off no i'm good we're good still recording and um and yeah, and so I thought, why not, why not write a book rather than about a specific journey? Um, you know, the theme of, of elephant conservation and, um, but not just that, the, the whole spectrum of, of issues that have faced elephants over, over the centuries, bringing it up to the modern day and to see whether or not there is any sort of glimmer of hope um, for that species, but, but, you know, other species as well. And it's, it was a really interesting project because I'm not a, an elephant biologist I'm, I'm not a conservationist and i've just got a keen interest in in them so i had to do a lot of research um particularly into elephant psychology and biology and, and, and history and evolution and things like that so it was, it was a really fascinating project something i got my teeth stuck into last year and um it's good to see it come to fruition just now yes yeah, so it's mainly like so you talk about elephant psychology there how intelligent are we talking about 
if you were compared to say cats and dogs and that kind of like well, how intelligent is an, is an elephant or maybe a mortal platoon you know like <laughs> i mean so elephant there's, there's something called the mark test which was a a psychological intelligence test that was developed in the 1970s to try and understand um animals or other species um self-awareness and, and basically it involves i mean you might have seen these videos on youtube where, where you put a mirror in front of an animal and see what happens i mean they put them in the jungle and see what happens if a panther or a gorilla or whatever looks at itself and most animals the vast vast majority of species will just look at itself in the mirror and just assume it's another animal so if you do that to a dog or a cat they just they start barking or they'll they'll sort of lose it a bit um there are very few species that understand that it's them and the, the, the why it's called the mark test is what they'll do is um they'll take an animal and put a, a mark whether that's a bit of ash or i don't know a marker pen or some paint on its forehead and if they realize that it's them they'll sort of touch it or, or whatever and there's only it's the great apes so you know gorillas and, and monkey uh, and um orangutans and uh, chimpanzees they they get it they understand it's, that it's them especially when they look around the side of the mirror and then they're like, okay, that's me. <laughs> um, dolphins can do it, bizarrely, because dolphins are highly intelligent. Some species of whale, the beluga whale particularly, they're really intelligent. And, um, and crows, yeah. certain types of crows. Crows are super intelligent. And the only other one is the, is the elephant. Um, so it's, they're, they're really, really intelligent. They, they're very highly social, sociable. I mean, they've got very complicated family structures um, that are actually very similar to humans. I mean, basically the females all sit together, they hang out together, they raise the young together. Um, there's, a, there's a sort of matriarchal society. And then the, the males, when they get to like teenagers, they go off in gangs with other boys, always in trouble, eating people's crops, <laughs> trampling things down. And then when they get a bit older, they get bored of that and then they go wandering off on their own. So there's a lot of similarities. And, um, and the way they communicate is also quite remarkable. They can, they can use this, um, they use this deep grumble, a contact call in their, um, in their larynx um, that basically emanates, um, emanates these, these, these noises that, that can be communicated over up to 20 kilometers. Wow. And they, they actually pick, pick these vibrations up using seismic sort of sensors in their feet. So there are some theories that suggest that the, that the herds of wild African elephants can actually pass messages from herd to herd, which would um, explain some things like um, during the tsunami in back in 2004, how elephants just knew there was something coming and they all headed for the high hills. Right. Um, or indeed, if there's danger, if there's poachers or if there's a war going on. I mean, I was in South Sudan a few years ago when the civil war kicked off. And it was amazing how quickly all the locals said the elephants just disappeared. They knew that there was violence, they knew there was a threat. So they all disappeared back into places like Uganda or, or uh, the Congo. And then 10 days later, after, after the civil war was... Um, was called, well, a ceasefire was called the elephants just came back i mean it's it's remarkable really yeah. so they're very bright creatures which is why i think they deserve a bit more attention we don't know a great deal about them because they're obviously very difficult to to study in the wild because they, they, they can be very dangerous so there's only a handful of researchers across africa that really um understand all that much about elephants all right i do the crow thing interests me as well because that's one of those yeah. One of those animals in the because obviously in the UK, you know, we're very strict on what you can and can't kill. And crows are mm -hmm. one of the ones that you actually can, which is, you know, I think, you know, you can just because they're a pest or whatever. And that's kind of like, that's quite sad yeah. now that I realize they have some kind of, um, what would you call this? Like, what's the word? Some kind of like self. Um, self awareness. Yeah. Self -awareness. I mean, there's, there's an amazing, there's some lots of good stories. I mean, crows, they, they, they can take nuts that they can't crack open with their beak. They know that the, um, they know that they can take them. They, they fly them onto zebra crossings. They'll put the nuts down where the cars will, will, will come over. They'll crush them. And then they know that when the lights go red, they'll come down and pick up the remains so they can eat them. See, that's, <laughs> that's fantastic. We shouldn't be allowed to kill that yeah. animal. That animal is too, animal is too <laughs> intelligent. There's a, lot, there's, a lot more, right, yeah. there's a lot more idiotic animals out there that we could eat. What's your stance on uh, eating meat and stuff? Or just to digress a little bit, is it, are you... Uh, yeah, I mean, are, are you, are you, I, I'm kind of... I kind of, uh, I was a full on meat eater until very recently, actually, about, about a year and a half ago, I decided that I was going to try and quit red meat and, um, pretty much have, I mean, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I still, if I, if somebody serves me up a steak, 
and I've not sort of told them that I'm not eating it, then I'll, then I'll eat it. So I'm not, I'm not sort of too strict or rigid about it, but I just don't eat that much red meat anymore. I mean, when I remember when I was in the army, you know, you sort of get served up bacon every morning and, and that's it, isn't it? But, um, but yeah, I, I've just kind of got, got off the red meat and I, I feel a lot more healthy. Um, healthy it's a health, so it was a health decision rather than an ethical one? No, it was, it was more, originally it was environmental because like the South American beef industry is one of the biggest contributors to um, the human carbon footprint. I mean, the amount of Amazon rainforest that gets chopped down for cattle grazing and soy production, which is the main cattle feed, you know, has basically screwed the environment. So I did it on that basis, but also I just generally feel better by not eating that much red meat. So, yeah. I'm going to have to pit it. Pause, mate. It's fucking starting to rain. I don't believe this. Fucking California. <laughs> In California, for fuck's sake. <laughs> this is a fucking first. It's, it's glorious in London. We've got like 22 degrees. Just give me one second to grab my lead in, mate. I can't believe this. Let's pop you, pop you in there. How's that? Mm-hmm. All right, yeah, fucking rain. Right, we won't be needing those anymore. Um, yeah, so obviously, because it's a, a big, um, it's a big, obviously, ethical question now, isn't it? And even if you, mm. even if you, even if your ethics are fine with the idea of eating animals, there's still this, um, there's still this environmental issue about it. You know, so you might have no dramas whatsoever with the fact that you're eating meat, but it's. Because it's not just the, the it's not just the cutting down of the forest, is it? It's then the fact that you then have this methane production then in st- on top of it. So it's like a it's like a double whammy, really. Um, yeah. So what, what kind of like uh, when you've been traveling, like what are the attitudes to um, to elephants that you've kind of that you've seen um, d- like differing from country to country? Because like you like you were saying, the young elephants trampling crops you know, it's going to be, you might have a hard time telling that guy that the elephants deserve to be able to roam free and, you know, all that kind of side of things. Yeah, that's one of the biggest issues. Um, so I did a trip last summer. Um, I walked across Botswana with a herd of elephants, which was an amazing trip, um, which we filmed for a, for a documentary that's coming out on Channel 4 in the UK, uh, I think next month, and it, that will be going out in the States on Animal Planet and Discovery Channel. And, um, and the idea behind that, as part of this wider project of trying to understand elephants, was, was to really make a natural history program, but not just about the species, the animals themselves, but also to try and get an understanding of this human-wildlife conflict and, and find out what the local people think about living alongside wildlife. And you're right, because when you've got in places like Botswana, where you've got actually quite a high density of elephants. Um, There's about 120,000 elephants in Botswana, which is a third of all African elephants. And the reason for that is because um, they've actually had pretty stringent um, environmental and conservation policies, which means that all the other countries where like Angola or Zambia, Zimbabwe, where there's massive levels of poaching and corruption, the elephants have just congregated in Botswana. So, And that goes back to like you were saying about the fact that they can... Yeah, the, yeah exactly. But the problem with that now is that the perception amongst in Botswana is that, oh, we've got too many elephants. I mean, the right. fact that they haven't got too many elephants, the, the numbers have actually remained pretty similar over the years. The problem is now there's a human population growing, so that there's just more contact with wildlife. Right. Um, so what that means is that, you know, elephants, like humans, need to drink pretty much every day. They need to eat at least every couple of days. So that they, you know, the elephants can eat... Um, for 18 hours a day if they if they get the opportunity um so they need access to grazing they need access to water rivers and of course that's where people live along the river so as a result there's this increase in in this friction and competition for resources um and that inevitably involves you know it ends up in some accidents and elephants do go and eat people's crops they do trample down fences and and occasionally people do get killed and it's it's very tragic but but we've got to remember that we're building on their land. We're building, you know, roads, we're building fences, and it's disrupting these ancient migration routes that have been the elephant's lifeline for thousands of years. So 
it's kind of we have to kind of find that balance but obviously for local people who don't necessarily have that much education it's a it's a tough ask and it's a big ask because they're like well hang on you know my kid's just been killed on his way to school of course we're going to go and kill the elephant you know of course we're going to want to continue hunting and poaching because uh um, and that that sort of land and habitat loss that's happening is all over africa is actually a far bigger threat now than poaching which has kind of grabbed the headlines for for many many years because that has resulted in 20,000 elephants a year being killed mm. at least um some years it's been up to 40,000 uh, which is a massive caused a massive decline i mean in i don't know how old you are but i guess we're a similar sort of age i mean in our lifetimes elephant numbers have halved wow you know so it's it's a it's a real um it, you know the numbers speak for themselves really but for the future looking forward that's only going to get a lot worse as the available land for them to roam is is eaten into yeah it's um it's a very difficult one because it's like it's easy for me to sit here right now and say Oh, that they should all be protected and have the right to roam. Um, mm. Again, you know, if you're living in if you're living in poverty and then you're you don't you know, that crop. I mean, like, look, right now, people having to take a month or two off work. People, a lot of people in the UK are paycheck to paycheck, and the US are paycheck to paycheck. So, mm. you know, in in a lot of these developing countries, I could just say how how devastating that would be. And also, um, the generally, I think when you go to Africa and and some of these other parts of the world, the the price of life feels cheaper in in general for for a lot of things. Like the human price of life is often quite a lot cheaper, so it's yeah. hard, it's harder for people some some people to kind of conceptualize that. Uh, what what other kind of uh, what what other wildlife did you see or learn something about that kind of surprised you as you were going on, going on this journey? Well, I had this amazing local guide called Carne, and he was a a sand bushman and the sand people are the original um, race of people from Southern Africa. I mean, they've, they've been around for hundreds of thousands of years and um, they are very much in tune with nature. I mean, they, for up until the 1980s and early 1990s, they were some of the last real hunter gatherer nomads in the world. Right. You know, they didn't live in villages. They just slept under trees and would forage for roots and berries or they'd hunt. So this guy, he was, um, you know, same age as me. So he grew up, you know, living as a nomad and an incredible character, but his understanding of nature and wildlife was, was something else. I mean, he could literally replicate the sound of any animal, you name it, any bird, any. So if we wanted to see um, lion, for instance, he would just make the noise of a distressed antelope. And then the lions would come to us, which was like, absolutely insane um there was one day actually where some lions walked through our camp where we, where we sort of put our tents they walked straight past our tents and they'd gone to chase down a buffalo so we followed them which in itself was, was like wow because we we're all on foot you know so we followed this this pride of three lions as they as they stalked and and eventually sort of took down this buffalo and uh, it took, took them a good few hours because the lions were being quite lazy and they were just sort of teasing it and going <laughs> up and taking a chomp out of its backside. Class, so it's a classic brutal, class. brutal thing Cats to see. Cats are fucking horrible, mate. They, they are, yeah. <laughs> um, but what was amazing was we watched this from a distance of maybe 15 metres, uh, this buffalo being killed. And when the lions finally killed it and they'd had a bit you know, to eat, um, Carne said to me, he said, do you want to go and have a look at the buffalo. I said, what do you mean? He said, let's just go and have a look. I was, there's lions there just eating from it. He said, that's fine. He said, this is how we used to get meat back in, the, back in my childhood. And, you know, his mother would have him as a baby on his back while his mother would just go up to the lion kill and help herself. And, and so I said, okay, well, if you, you know, I trust you. So we just went, walked straight up to these lions and they didn't budge until we were about three meters away. And I was bricking it, you know. <laughs> but, but Carne was like, look, you know, just follow me. So we walked straight up to these lions. And right at the last moment, they gave a big roar and then just darted off. They didn't go far. They went maybe five meters away and then just hung out on some trees and watched us. And Carne just, we went right up to this buffalo. And he explained how he would, you know, just take a bit of the, uh, bit of the meat and then leave the lions to it. Wow. And that was just an amazing experience to get quite so close to these predators. And it, it reminds you, you know, that ultimately we are humans are the apex predators and we're the ones that are, we're the ones that everything else is afraid of. Well, and we, but the problem is we, we, we live in this fear bubble. We're all, we're always scared of, of nature and, and that's because we kind of lost touch with it. But the reality is we are, we are the big Kings out there. 
Yeah, because I think they just have it. It's the same way as like I always think if you see a bit of hose pipe on the floor, you walk around the corner, a bit of hose pipe, you just automatically think snake, don't you, when you jump back? Yeah. And then the animals seem to have the same imprint in their mind that they see, you know, they see humans and mm-hmm. they, they, they try and stay away from you if possible, you know. Because you think all the crocodiles in the all the crocodiles out there, all the sharks, all the tigers, all the lions, the amount of actual human deaths as a result of it, tiny. It's just, just absolutely so, tiny, yeah. Just so tiny, but we have like we have this terrible fear of it. I think it's I think it's it's the fear of being eaten alive by something is like right now we're seeing with this whole COVID thing, people are terrified of something that they can't control. Yeah. Um, and I think it's the same. It's the idea of it's the the idea of being like being being put onto the bottom of the pile um, is is very scary for people. Talking of tigers, have yeah. you watched the Tiger King? <laughs> I, I'm on episode seven. I, I think there's one more to watch. Is there? So yeah, I'm almost finished. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, let's have you. You've seen enough to have a good impression, or sorry, an impression. What is your impression of the Tiger King? I mean, they're just lunatics, aren't they? All of them. There's not. There's not a sane one amongst them. It's mental. Like this, <laughs> the stuff that flies under the radar on that show that you don't pick up on. Like the guy, you know, one of the guys is like, "Yeah, I was the inspiration for Scarface." He's only in the show for two minutes. You know, that, <laughs> that is like the, the level of like madness going on in there. Um, yeah, but, I mean, it's it's quite. Honest, did Carol Baskin feed the husband to the tigers? Hundred <laughs> percent. Definitely. <did. laughs> Definitely. You one hundred percent did. What, what's your kind of what's your position on um, what's your position on those those kind of zoos those 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 zoos and and people person and people being able to own um, people being able to own big cats and exotic animals. Yeah, I mean it's pure ego as far as I'm concerned. I mean this is just uh, I from from my perspective, I don't think anyone should should be able to own big cats predators in in that those sorts of conditions i mean it's just why would you apart from just showing off so that people can put photos on instagram um animals I mean, that, that's what i wild. use my cat for i just use my <laughs> i use my cat for instagram so i totally agree with you mate <laughs> yeah. um but you know i think yeah I, I think that um there's a there's a there's a place for animals and i think that if if the amount of energy and and sort of attention that went into these zoos and and personal private collections actually was spent on real conservation where it matters in africa then we'd be in a far better place with protecting species but but yeah i mean i think there's just yeah there's a there's a really um there's a real sort of dichotomy that you've got because people i guess on the one hand that's the only experience they'll ever have of a tiger is, is seeing it in somebody's garden. But you know, it's not, it's not the right place. It's, it's just in, it's inhumane and um, it's, it's tragic because most of these tigers will end up, you know, just living a pretty terrible life. Well, it's, and this is one of the reasons as well that I've uh, like you, cause without doubt you see those animals. I remember going to a, 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 a quote unquote zoo in France when I was a kid. Mm. And it was just bare. It was like, you know, like it was basically like squash courts with, you know, with an animal in it. Yeah. And um, you could see that these things were distressed. It was horrible. It was horrible. We all left. The family left there. We all fucking felt fucking Mm. absolutely horrible. But, um, you know, it's one of the things that it does worry me about the position that we're in right now with, you know, this kind of thing of people locking themselves away in apartments and things. It's like, look, if, if something with the cognitive ability of a bear is going to get the stress being locked up and not having mm. contact with other people than a human being certainly is. And, um, you know, you and I are on a zoom call right now, which is great. You know, technology is making this a lot easier, but I do, I do think the, like the, the long-term effects of, of isolating people, um, both individually and collectively, I, I, I think is quite, I think it's quite a dangerous thing. The other thing as well, dude, I've started to think recently, just going off on a tangent here, while we're talking about people or animals locked up, is uh, how inhumane, like, the um, the isolation of people in prison is. Like, this whole, you know, when they put people in, um, what do they call it? Mm. Solitary confinement. Solitary, yeah. I, mean, I think, right, if there's anything good that could come out of this, if people could just agree that solitary confinement is not, like, something that should be done. <laughs> Um, should be done to people just because they've been playing up a little bit. Um, but yeah, to get so to get back on the animal thing, do you think there'd be any feasibility in like, because one of the things I, I drove across America the other week to help my friend move move house and um, it's just, you know, you've been to America. The vast, the, just the vastness of this place is incredible. Yeah. Is, is there feasibility in it? Like, so 
what you're saying in Botswana, there's, you know, um, obviously like a, a, there's a lot of, there's, there's a growing population of people. There's a population of elephants. The two of them are clashing. Is there feasibility in cutting off parts of other countries and relocating animals and giving them a fresh start in new territories? Or are they so tied in with their migratory routes and that kind of thing that that's just not feasible? No, ele elephants, can, there can be translocation projects that work, but the problem is until quite recently, people didn't really understand the social structure. So you can't just pick, say, a random bunch of five elephants and just put them in another country. They have to be within their family groups. There has to be the right ratio of males to females. There has to be the right level of um, experience within those groups. So you need a, a matriarch. You need a sort of a wise old female elephant who's going to lead all the females. You also need a couple of older male elephants who can keep the youngsters in check because without that, they, they go, they just get rowdy because they've got no <laughs> teachers and it's the same as human population. Yeah. I mean, there's a big, there's a big argument within the hunting community um, in Africa. It's like, well, we only shoot old males because they're like useless now. It's like, that's bollocks. It really is because you know, it's, it's all well and good killing the old males because they're going to die soon anyway. But like the old males are the ones that instill discipline amongst the youngsters if you don't have that then the youngsters are the ones that go rogue and start ripping down fences because they don't have the understanding that humans are going to kill them back so right. um it's so, just a so moot point the, adults, the, the, the older elephants understand the consequence absolutely they live for wow. 60 years or 65 wow, years so they there's a real understanding they they're very bright they understand what you know they they testing and there's there's cases of an elephant sort of going up to um electric fences and when they get a shock, they're like, okay, I get that. It's an electric fence. But if they want to get it anyway, you know, some of the older males who are just a bit more of a bully, they'll, they'll lead the younger males up to them and then just shove them <laughs> into the electric fence to, to tell them to go first, which also gives them a good lesson as well. So there's, there's amazing stories like that. But, but the point is that if you're going to like move elephants to a new area, you've got to make sure you've got the right family groups, the right individuals to make sure that it works. Because if you just chuck a bunch of young males there they're just going to go roaming off to try and find females if you put females in there on their own they're going to go off looking for males so like you've got to yeah. make sure it's balanced now there's one of the best ideas that i've encountered is is these cross-border um what they call the trans frontier um mega parks and the idea is to, to kind of join up all the national parks or certainly the ones close to each other using elephant corridors and keep people out of those areas so that elephants can roam they'll soon learn to adapt to the new corridor so they don't have to follow exactly the same paths as they always have as long as there is some way of getting to where they need to be but you've got to be pretty strict with people and say i'm sorry but you're not allowed in there and people don't like that but it's the only way without that elephants are just going to get forced into smaller and smaller little pockets until they just disappear yeah and like it seems like you're saying if the pockets are useless as well because they'll need, they need to cross from one to the other. Um, yeah. And it's, um, yeah, like, that seems like a great idea of using their adaptability, um, you know, to, to, to our advantage by, you know, giving them those corridors. Um, okay, while we're on the subject of older, wiser, because uh, I know we have a lot of young men listening to this, you were, you know, you were a, you were a soldier. You, you, were a, um, you went into uh, three-para. And I was, yeah, three part. We have a lot of people listening who are um, looking at joining the forces or are youngsters in the forces. So now, now that you are a older bull male, what kind of uh, <laughs> advice? What kind of advice would you give to um, to these to the younger listeners? Uh, I mean, look for me, joining the the paras um, was was one of the best things I've ever done. I mean, it gave me um, it just gave me a lot more a sense of confidence that I don't think I would have ever got anywhere else. Uh, gave me experiences that I never would have received anywhere else. And more than anything, I think it gives you an amazing network of, of contacts all around the world. I mean, I certainly wouldn't be able to do all these different expeditions had I not got my little black book of people that work in the charity sector, NGOs, security, whatever it might be, media, UN, to be able to say, ring them up and say, look, do you know any local fixers or any local guides or linguists? And, and as a result, um, it's just made my life a lot easier doing what I do. And I think when I set out to join, you know, enter this world in the first place, having left the, the army 10 years ago, I think the only reason that I was given a commission by 
the, you know, the powers that be in, in the world of television and probably the publishers too was because I had been in the army and, and it's got such a strong and powerful reputation that people will put a trust in you. And so I, I highly recommend it, even if it's just for a few years, to go and get some experience. Um, it just, it, you know what it demonstrates? It demonstrates commitment to something. Mm. which is something that's in short supply in these in this day and age and people's attention spans. And uh, there's, there's a certainly an attitude um, that, that people kind of just don't want to commit to anything for more than a year or two years job wise. Whereas if you say, I'm going to go and join the army for four years, five years, um, you, you learn a lot from that and you, you get, you get a lot from it. You're in a position where you can contribute something, you can learn new skills and you make a great network and a bunch of friends around the world. No, no, I do. I think exponentially as well. It's like that time, even that four years, you'll get so much more out of that four years than an equivalent four years in a, in another one. Like you know, I always talk tell, talk people about, say operations. Some mm. people have just done one operational tour. That up that six months of their life will has a overbearing influence on on so much good and bad. You know, could could be, could be very good um, over so much else that they've done. Uh, I feel, I feel like for you, you know, you and I were very fortunate in the timing that we have, you know, mm. just by the, just by the grace of when we were born, you know, we were, um, very fortunate in the time that we were in the army, you know, when there was a, when there was a lot of expeditions going on, when there was stuff to do yeah. going on. Yeah. You know, cause it does, that does definitely go in peaks and troughs of kind of what people, um, get to do. But I think, um, yeah, it's one of those things, the, the networking, you see, you hear people talk sometimes derogatively about old, the old boys network and stuff, but um, so for any young people listening, don't, don't be made to feel that networking is some dirty thing that, you know, mm. is, is beneath you. It is, it's, the sooner you start doing it, the sooner you will like, or doors will start opening up for you in, in all different directions. I feel like, um, especially in the kind of, um, especially in the, um, like the enlisted banks, it's seen as a bit of a, it's like, it's, it's like a bit of a dirty, like a dirty mm. thing in the old boys network. And I think, you know, like, um, I, th- I think that the officers do it. A, they do a lot better doing that. They get a, a lot better of a head start doing it. But I'm, I'm feel, I feel I feel exactly the same way, mate. Like a lot of the jobs that I do in in writing and things all come from, you know, the the network of the army. I, I think there's. I think like you are you saying, people know that you can um, stay the course with a commitment. I think it's also that they um, that there's a level of trust as well that they feel like yeah. It's like, well, this is this. He's probably a ninety-nine percent of blokes in the military that I've met have been trustworthy blokes who you can yeah. you can you can rely on to to see things through. Um, so when when you when you came out of the military, did you have your heart set on this kind of lifestyle that you're leading now? How did you build this? Because you seem like a very happy bloke. Could all be an act for the cameras, <laughs> but no, <laughs> um, but no, you seem seem like a very happy bloke, mate. Who's living a fucking great life. Um, yeah these things don't happen by accident. So you've had yeah, some design yeah, yeah. onto how to make this happen. So like you said, networking would be one thing. How, how would you, how have you gone about kind of building this life that you lead, that you lead now? So I left in, uh, well, exactly, almost exactly 10 years ago. I think it was January 2010. Um, and my first love, you know, bef- even before the army was always travel. I mean, when I, when I was 18, I couldn't wait to escape and get away from home and, and just disappear off and, and go, you know, bumming around the world. And that's exactly what I did. And, and I, you know, did what a lot of youngsters do and backpack around Southeast Asia and India and I grew my hair and grew a beard. And, you know, it was great fun. And, uh, and that never really left me even when I joined the army. Cause like, I, you know, I went to university and studied history and, and that was kind of all related because I studied um, the history of travel writing, which is kind of probably one of the few people that's ever studied history and got to use it. But um, it, it was <laughs> that that itself. One, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and after that, I, I, back, I did a bit more traveling before I you know, went to Sandhurst. I, um, I hitchhiked from Nottingham, where I was a student, all the way to India um, along the old Silk Road. And I went to Afghanistan and Pakistan. That was, that was all before I joined the army. And I got a lot out of that because it kind of taught me that all these places that we see on the news that we relate to danger and poverty and conflict and badness. Actually, when you get there, you know, 99% of the people there are also pretty good and they'll look after you. And, and I was taken in by people across Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iran, all the places that you see on the news for the bad, bad reasons um, and, and shown incredible hospitality. And it gave me a real faith, I suppose, in, in human nature, which 
kind of was at odds with some of my colleagues' attitudes in the army, I have to say. And they all thought I was a bit of a dick for going to Afghanistan. But that was probably only because they were a little bit jealous that I'd been there before. They thought it was like a whole man situation. <laughs> yeah. So when I, when I left, I knew I had it, you know, set my heart on the fact that I knew I wanted to go and travel a bit more it, it, under my own steam. I mean, I think, and I, I would never criticise the army, but I did feel as though it didn't really tickle all my creative juices. And I definitely, there was, you know, I had a, an itch to scratch in terms of wanting to do a bit, something a bit more creative, something, I, I, I'd always loved writing, um, something I wanted to do. One of my ambitions always was to just write a book. That was kind of like what I knew I wanted to do. How I was going to get there, I didn't really have a clue. Um, so when I left the army, I just, you know, I, I volunteered for a few charities in Africa. I got as much experience as I could um, writing free articles for travel magazines and did a bit for Lonely Planet and the guidebooks. Um, taught myself photography just because I knew that that's probably a skill that would complement it. And all those things combined over the course of about three years, so until about 20, 2013, that and I set, ended up setting up a business um, which basically as, a, as an expedition leader and guide. So I was taking people to usually post-conflict zones, but in, in a sort of capacity of um, looking after the logistics and the security. So, you know, we took people horse riding um, in the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan, took people skiing on the Iran-Iraq border, took people camel riding across the Sahara Desert in Sudan. And I think after three years of doing that, I got enough experience and probably credibility that I started getting approached by the media, by... Um, discovery channel channel four saying oh can you take our journalists in so the media side of things kind of came in that way um but i still had this like desire at the back of my mind i want to go and write a book do a big trip do a big expedition something that maybe has never been done before so that i can just satisfy that urge so i just came up with the idea of one walk the river nile something that nobody had done before and um Took a couple of years of planning for that, and they did it, and and that kind of set the ball rolling. And just did I it. Just Simple as that. Just did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was nine nine months of walking. That was like four and a half thousand miles. Wow. Um, and it was a bloody long trip and very hard. You know, everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong in many ways. Um, and that's with it, a couple of years of planning as well. And that's with a couple of years of planning. I mean, it was it was an epic, epic journey. But the you know, I suppose go back to that word commitment. It paid off. And ha having sort of stuck at it, and there were lots of times when I thought, I don't even know if I can carry on with this. But by completing that, suddenly all the doors opened at once. And I was then offered every opportunity I could ever have dreamed of, more money than I'd ever imagined all at once. And so it kind of just like, wow, what, what do I do with this? And I knew that I didn't want to sort of then just waste it and squander it. So I just then... I effectively wrote a bucket list of the next five trips and, and then I've done one a year for the, for the last fantastic. five, six years. And it's, and it's, I've only just got to the point now where I'm having like time to breathe and actually um, take a bit of downtime. It's been a, been a bloody roller coaster ride and, and some pretty uh, close encounters along the way, but you know, it's all been worth it because now I just feel really content with having done all the things that I could ever imagine. And, um, uh, and get to the point where I can hopefully share some of that information and knowledge and, and inspire other people to, to kind of follow their dreams. Yeah, and well, uh, well, on that one then, when there was those times where you wanted to jack it in, or sorry, you thought about jacking it in, what was it about it that, like, when you've got another three, four thousand miles to go, what was <laughs> it that, what, what was it that made you say, like, no, I can't, you know, I can't? Because, you know, um, you, you, had, you must have had yeah. something but you'd come in into the war this to have gone through P company, et cetera. So you, are, you obviously had some mental fortitude even as a child or as a young man, I should say. So, yeah. how, how, uh, but like a lot of people do P company and not a lot of people walk Nile. So what's, what was that kind of like that step up in mental kind of uh, mental toughness, I guess. I, well, I think in true military style, it was probably the shame of failure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> having, having committed to something, I, I had no desire to go home and, and admit, that I'd failed. It's better to I die on the I, side of the field. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Which I know is a bit bloody-minded and a lot of people wouldn't understand. Certainly people outside the military community would just think, fuck that. But no, I, I, it was that. And, and ultimately, I, I, I sort of, it, I knew that it was either that or go and get a real job. 
and there was no oh. way that was ever going to happen. <laughs> Mate, both both of those things you just said are both just terrifying forces. The fa- the, fa- <laughs> the fa- failure and so I did. Um, this is this is not quite walking down the Nile, but just it kind of proves the point of the feel of the fear of failure. I was uh, in Vegas a few weeks ago, and I went to a party, and I was shit faced, and I thought it'd be a good idea to get up and DJ, and I was like, you know, like people like a proper dance floor and everything. Yeah, and I, knew, I knew it was a terrible idea and I was drunk but I did it anyway and I pressed stop on the wrong music so all the music cut out <laughs> and every now and again this is about four weeks ago now every now and again I'll remember that memory and I'll just feel like drenched in shit down your spine. and I'll just yeah. want to I'll just want to curl up so the idea of having to like I can't even imagine what that pressure would have been like when you were doing something <laughs> like that I mean it must have been it must, it must have been horrific um, yeah it was but, <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's, um, there's, there's that, there, there's something about, I don't know if it's something that people are born with or what, what's your opinion on it? Do you get, are you born with this kind of like, you know, obviously you've got very high goals, you have very high goals, you've already achieved a lot. I dare say you have a lot more that you want to achieve. Um, where does that come from? Is that like an intrinsic thing or was it instilled into you? Or? Um, it's a really good question. I'm not sure if I know the answer to that. I mean, I definitely had you know, I think I had a, whether you want to call it a dream or a vision from quite a young age. I mean, I knew from the age of six that I was going to join the army. That was, that oh, was yeah. just, I just and knew. How, and how I, did, and, and was that, was that by comparison to what your friend, like, you know, you were. No, none of my friends into. were interested in it. None of, it wasn't like I grew up in it. I didn't go to like, a, I come from a particularly military family. I'm, you know, my granddad was in the war and I grew up on his stories and both my parents are teachers and they just encouraged me to be curious and they put, they gave me a real um, respect for education. Even though I was a, a rebel and I was always in trouble with my teachers and, uh, and, and the like, I, I kind of got away with it because I, I did actually enjoy reading. Right. And that gave me a lot of inspiration. And, you know, I, I just read like the Odyssey when I was 10 and right. just maybe it was a bit of self-delusion on some part that I kind of just from a very young age, I wanted to go out and slay dragons and, uh, you know, sort of conquer mountains. And, uh, you know, I wanted to live in this kind of, I suppose, fantasy world. And whether or not that's realistic, I mean, you know, it, I, I guess it goes to prove that it, it, you can do it if you, mm. if you, if you put your mind to it. Um, in, in a way, and I think that what I've done over the last few years has, for most people, probably just been like, "What? Why would you want to do that?" But for me, it's like just fulfilling all those boyhood fantasies. Yeah. And maybe it's a bit of a Peter Pan attitude, but frankly, I don't care. No, I love, I love it, dude. I mean, there's this, there's a, definitely there's this romanticism as well. I think when I think back to, um, I, I love reading the old like Bernard Cornwell books about Sharp and. You know, yeah. the George MacDonald Fraser books, the Flashman books, these old empire yeah. stories where people are like, even if you were in the army those days, it'd quite often be like, you'd just be right off, off you go, make your way to Pakistan or well, India as it was at the time, <laughs> make, make your way to yeah. the Hindu Kush and um, make your way to the Hindu Kush and report for orders there. And like all this kind of adventure. And I think uh, I agree going back to something you were saying about the army. I love the army, but I, at the same time, I felt like, it wasn't there was no individual it wasn't individual adventures to be had it was like the battalion got the adventure or or kind yeah. of like and um and i because i growing up on those books like george mcdonald fraser i really like the idea of just being given a fucking letter and being saved like, just cutting about make yeah. your way to the other side <laughs> of the world and then you get there and there's a rebellion going on or something i yeah. I, I, I love that how about the writing then so you were you wanted to be a soldier from from an early age where did you were you were you like, because I, I feel like reading and writing quite often go hand in hand. If you're a prolific reader, quite often yeah. people, whether, whether or not it's something that they then pursue, I think you at least get the idea that you want to write. If you're reading all the sure. time, it's like if you're watching football all the time, you're going to have a fucking fantasy about being Wayne Rooney or someone like you. Or whoever's, <laughs> whoever's in football these days. I don't watch football. But. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, you know, my brother was big into his football as a kid. I really wasn't that bothered at all. And I just wanted to i suppose i I just loved history history books and stories and storytelling and like you say growing up on flashman and uh and sharp the same exactly the same i wanted to write my own stories and, and have my own adventures so that i could tell stories and um and so and, and also i think a genuine i just love the art form i, I really thought 
growing up that that you know the written word is the is the noblest form of art you know it's it's a legacy that will will last forever do you feel do um, you feel that then do you feel about these books that you've written now does it give you a warm fuzzy feeling knowing that they're going to be around after you're gone absolutely yeah you know it's um i feel it's something that if my grandchildren, if I ever have any, which is highly unlikely, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it, gives them, it gives them a chuckle in, in 50 years' time, then, then that'll be great. And if it gives other people's kids or whoever reads the books um, some entertainment or inspiration, these, you know, I'm not saying they're going to change the world, but the amount of really positive feedback I've had from people literally from every country in the world almost has been quite astounding people who are you know i've had letters from somebody who is 99 years old saying wow. you know can you can you please like sign me a photo because i'm i'm on my deathbed but i really enjoyed your book it's like wow that's yeah. that's amazing equally i've had like six-year-old kids write to me saying i want to do what you i want to do what you're doing when i grow up and and every sort of everything in between and, and that is really heartwarming um and I don't do it for the I don't do it for for the acclaim. Uh, I think that would be the wrong reason to to get into any any art. Um, I think you've got to do it because you you love it genuinely, and that you you know anything else is really just a positive benefit bonus, really. Yeah, and also because you're terrified of having a nine to five job, which I well, there is that did. too. Yeah, because there are because look, there are days. There are days I had one. I had one yesterday. I had a day yesterday where I just could not stop writing. It was just fucking yeah. coming out, and it was good. And I was going. I did a book, and I did script, and it was great. And then there's other days where it's the blinking cursor, and you're just like fuck. And on those, on, on those, <laughs> on those days, the fear of having the nine to five is the powerful motivator. Certainly <laughs> Cause, is because the thing is, we're writing, mate. Like you say, it is an art, but it's also a job. It's like yeah. it's part of your job, and you have to treat it that way. I think sometimes where people um, come stuck a lot of the times when they're trying to write a book is they try and they're trying to make a work of art rather than like, it's like, um, you, you know, get, you, I mean, first and foremost, if you want to be a writer, if you want to be any successful artist, you've got to be a businessman. Mm-hmm. I've learned that the hard way. Cause I tried to write stuff that just for my own benefit. And that's just vanity. Mm-hmm. Like Ernest Hemingway, when he's questioned, why do you write? He said for the money and people are like, really? And he was like being slightly, tongue in cheek but unless you're writing for an audience what's the point yeah and 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 i'm sure you know it's nice to keep a journal and and write letters to yourself or your loved ones but that's not that's not a serious writer's occupation if you want to if you want to sell books you've got to write for an audience you've got to really understand your craft and you've got to be a professional about it and that's that can be hard work because sometimes you well inevitably you will have to make compromises you'll have to sometimes submit to the editors or you know, give up on a book halfway through because the, the public opinion has changed about a subject or whatever it might be. And, and, and that's hard because, but, but, but ultimately it keeps you on the straight and narrow. So you're not just doing it for your own ego. You're doing it to satisfy a, a real requirement. Yeah. You, ha- you have to be able to walk away. From, I, I wrote a book last year dude, that I've, I've walked away from at this point and I wrote, I put a hundred thousand words into it and it's hard. But then I look at it again, you try and look at it from a business point of view. And I look at it as like my father's an estate agent. He's had, He's, he's had um, deals fall through in business. You know, it's it's, yeah. how, it's how it goes. It's just because it's just because you've written it and and created something doesn't mean that anybody's under the obligation to buy the fucker. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, I think where the, I think where this has changed has been with um, with self publishing. Like I'm experimenting with self publishing at the moment with some books. Mm. Um, uh, but I think one of the problems has been because just because you can self-publish doesn't mean you should self-publish. Like there's, yeah. I think self-publish has got a bit of a dirty name to it because so much crap has been put out mm. because, you know, because it's, it's easy to do. And just because it's easy doesn't mean you should do it. Like one, you know, like there's a lot of, you know, I love my publishers, but you know, I'd be lying if I said I've, there wasn't a lot of things that I would get fucking frustrated with. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, but, it's, <laughs> um, but, having a gatekeeper can be a very good thing you know when it, yeah you know, when it's uh you know filters out you know filters out certain it's filters out certain standard um because even though obviously like any artist subjective we know the difference between fucking 
dog shit and <laughs> something that's actually, <laughs> actually done. Um, so when, when you write, do you have like, do you, do you write while you're on, um, while you're on the move? Are you writing on then or are you taking notes and then you write? How do you, do you binge write when you get back? What's your kind of the process like? As they say? Yeah, well, I, to be honest, when I'm out and about, you know, on an expedition, um, there isn't really much time to write because you're either walking or traveling or you're setting up your tent or you're negotiating with a local tribal chief for the price of a chicken. And so by the, by the time you've done all that, you're just fucking knackered. So I, I try and do, a, you know, just a page of notes, just bullet points every day. Um, and then when I get back, that's when I properly write. I mean, I, I suppose I keep myself on the straight and narrow by having a strict deadline. And that's usually imposed by the publisher or, or I give them a, a deadline and then I, I know I've got to stick to it. I, I just want to jump in here as well, just to explain to people that again, I think is the difference between maybe a military attitude because um, I'm sure you're aware most people in the writing industry miss their deadlines. Yeah. Right? And I've I never think, missed a deadline yet. Well, I know. And I think that is one of the reasons why um, I certainly think it's been true for me. And like, I'm sure it's true for you is if you actually turn in your work on time by the deadline, you will, publishers will want to work with you because exactly. they can actually rely yeah. they can actually rely on you to then so so you're not fucking up their schedules but the Absolutely. The, the amount i, I can it, but the the figure i was to, like the percentage i was told by some editors about how many people miss their deadlines is staggering mm. <laughs> like it's like it's, <laughs> it's your job like but i think yeah. it comes down to uh hey you know it comes down to the old h hour thing you can't just turn up 30 minutes after H hour. when you fancy it, no. You know, so I think, I think that's important. So, um, yes, yeah, so when you, do you, do you then, do you binge write when you get back? Do you, do you give yourself a month, like, locked away? And all sort yeah, of? so I, depending on the length of the book, but if you, you know, if we're going on a sort of whatever it is, 300 pages, sort of between 80 and 90,000 words, um, I try and write 1,500 words a day minimum, usually 2,000. Um, and I'll just do, I treat it like a normal nine to five. I'll do nine to five, Monday to Friday, and bosh the whole thing out in two and a half months. Yeah, yeah I, I, want, I, want, that's to it. And, I and, want to second what you're saying there. That's exactly, mm-hmm. that's how I do it too. You've got to say, you have to set yourself deadlines. You have yeah. to set yourself targets. You can't be precious. If you, I, what I, my mantra is, you know, write 1500 words a day, even if it's shit, because mm-hmm. you, then you can use the next day to edit it. You know, just get the words down on paper. Don't be precious. You can't be a perfectionist. And then edit later, um, and that is the only way I've found to keep myself pumping out the words day in day out. Because the moment you have any self doubt, if you think, "Oh, I'm just not getting it," then then you lose you lose that momentum. And I think by having these imposed deadlines, and I'm kind of almost forced into it because I've blocked booked myself out for you know eighteen months ahead, and mm. I've committed to say an expedition you know, in January next year or a book tour or, um, or a speaking tour, wherever it might be, I, I don't have any flex in that schedule. Or the, the TV show I'm doing is going out and therefore the book needs to go out at the same time. The book has to be done on that deadline, whether it's good, bad or completely shit. So that's, that's what I do. I, I get it done. Simple as that. And the thing is, right, if once you're a competent, once you've worked on your craft and you're a competent writer, shit is not going to be shit anyway. It's going to be, you might have days where you're putting out pure gold, but even what what's not that standard is still going to be, it's not mm. going to be absolute drivel, is it? You know, and I, I think that's very important is keeping that forward momentum going, um, whether it be writing or fit, fitness is a great is a, a great example. Mm. Of it. There's going to be days where you're not. There's going to be days where you're going to be tired. There's going to be days where you're going to be just wanting to stay in bed. But if you just do a thirty minute walk on that day. You've kept the momentum going. You've done something, yeah. Of going, and I think I think the momentum is is momentum is something I think is really undervalued by people that they don't realise that you know you haven't got to have these like you haven't got to have like home runs every day, but you know mm. you just keep you just keep like um, you just keep hit, uh, hitting hitting small targets every day over yeah. the course. Of, so if you if your target is let's say someone's got a, a job and their target is five hundred words after work. They hit 500 words a day. By the end of the year, they'll have a book. Absolutely. You know, you and so and like, you know, you you could you could <laughs> you could do that quite easily while having another job. Yeah, um, 500 I think, words is is very is straightforward. I mean, anyone yeah. can do that. I think the thing is with books, mate, is that people look at the they look instead of looking at the process and saying like, look, if I do 500 words a day, I'll have a book in a year. They look at a book and go, how would I get a book? 
you yeah. know, they, it's you, it's breaking it down into those into those those micro things. How did it feel yeah. for you when you had that first book in your hand? Um, I, I was just over the moon. I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, that was for me. That was my dream come true. And I I thought, you know, wow, what do what do I do next? I mean, that was six years ago now, and. I, I genuinely thought life complete, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and then it was like oh shit, hang on, I need to I need to do something else now, and um, and then it it never gets any less terrifying because it's like okay, now I've got to do this. I want to I want to continue with this trajectory. Um, you know, if you'd have asked me when I left the army, um, would I have written ten books in the next ten years? I would have just pissed myself laughing. Mm-hmm. But um, that's my plan. I'm on I'm on number eight now and a couple more to do in the next 18 months and jobs are good do you feel like the pressure builds the more you put out or the or it kind of comes in in waves i think um it there can be times when the pressure's really on and you think shit is this the right is what i'm doing is right and there's definitely times when i was i bit off a bit more than i could chew and was just saying yes to everything and mm-hmm. going out every single night on the lash or going to like gallery openings or living on a diet of you know canapes and prosecco wearing a dinner jacket i mean it was like it was proper sort of and you live in london right? lifestyle living in london yeah. you know it's it's full on and, and i got to a point where i was just knackered by it all and just wanted to go on a proper beach holiday and just <laughs> you know chill out um and i i kind of knew that was that was kind of happening and, and made the decision to actually just start saying no to everything mm. um, and say, you know, unless I really wanted to do it. And, and that was a mind shift, mindset shift for me. And, um, and the funny thing is when you, well, I suppose any freelancer, whatever industry you're in, you're always, you always put the pressure on yourself. You feel guilty by turning work down because you're never sure when the next job or gig might come along. But the irony is when you, when you actually start saying no, I think with that like confidence, people think, "Oh God, he's actually really valuable." I'm gonna just I'll offer you more money, and and so the, <laughs> even more jobs come in, and it's 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 the irony of that. The whole industry is that um, actually the more sort of the the better you become, the more you can turn down, and and the irony then is there's more more opportunities open up. So uh, yeah, that's been a real learning curve for me to just be able to say no and to be able to pick and choose what I really want to do. I think the other thing on that as well, mate, is one of the things is that I, I know I certainly need to get better at saying no to myself because it might not even be that the projects are coming from other people, but I might, yeah. I might have, Oh, I've got all these fucking great ideas. All these ideas yeah. So it's saying no to yourself. Like, um, sure. and understanding as well. I think, um, I think this is just something that happens as well as you get older is your concept of like your concept of time changes. So, when you're in your twenties, the idea of waiting three years to do something just seems insane. And like yeah. now, I'm 36 now, and I've got projects. I've got projects that I'm working on now, which I came up with three or four years ago. And I'm mm. like, oh, actually, you know what? It wasn't the fucking end of the world that we yeah. that, that it's been three or four years, you know. Um, but I think uh, it's that that patience. It's um, yeah, sure. yeah. It's, learning it's, patience is a, is a, is a really important thing. Yeah. So, um, what, what's, what's, what's next for you then, mate? What's, what should people be looking out for? I know you've got, you said you've got the, the shows coming out. Yeah. So shows coming out next month. Um, I've then got a a photography book coming out in September. That's the next project. Um, it's basically a compilation of the last 10 years work all in one book, which is great. Are you doing a, a, uh, doing a gallery thing? Yeah, so I'll be doing an exhibition in London and hopefully New York as well. Oh, nice. Which would be cool. And then um, I've got another book out in January next year, which I've already written. So I've got three coming out, um, which is great. And that one one is sort of... Yeah, it's called The Explorer's Mindset. And it's a bit basically a sort of philosophy, smart thinking, kind of a bit of self-help. It's kind of all the the lessons that I've learned on the road, sort of... uh, broken down into themes um and that's kind of my way of i suppose sharing some of the, the secrets and tips of the of the trade um to to people that want to learn more yeah awesome i do have on the the podcast website we've got a section on there with books which has got all the books from all our guests on there so you're about, awesome. to, you're about to double the size um <laughs> you're about to double the size there. so anybody listening wants to check out Lev's books go to there do you do uh, do you have all your books as well yeah, I've done, I've done all audiobooks for all the books so far. So, do you narrate, yeah. do you narrate them? Uh, do, do you narrate them yourself? 
most of them i've i've yeah. bailed on a couple just because right. sitting in a studio reading my own stuff can sometimes be a bit dull yeah but you got you got a good voice on me you got a good voice i like i got it i'm gonna i find it um i find it a lot easier to consume audiobooks now than i do yeah i, I do books um where where can people find you online mate um well i've got a website levisonwood.com and um on my instagram i put all my stuff on there as well and then all my books are either on amazon if that's your shop of choice or you can get them at um, any decent bookshop yeah in the local in the support your local independent bookshop absolutely oh, actually no actually <laughs> fuck, fuck the local independent bookshops go to v, uh, go to vsonpodcast.com slash book <laughs> order them through there and that way we get our little cut of the amazon affiliate link so absolutely uh, so yeah get them through there and then everybody wins oh mate cheers for coming on pal i've enjoyed this chat um i like Thank to have you on again when, when you have your your next book out get Perfect. you on that Let's one we'll talk some mindset right i'm gonna hit stop on this Right, guys i hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as i did um yeah lev is just an absolute machine isn't he very inspiring bloke and um if you guys want to check out his books be some podcast.com slash books or look them up on amazon but um yeah get out there and support get out there and support leveson's work because um it's uh it's just it's just nuts really isn't it like <laughs> i just some you yeah, we're really lucky on this podcast we get so many inspiring people coming on Someone's just like walks the length of the Nile and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, just think, holy fucking shit. <laughs> like, so um, I'm really, really glad to have had him on. Um, let me know who you want on, guys. We'll keep reaching out to people. Or, um, let me know. Get in touch. Do you want longer podcasts? Do you want shorter podcasts? Do you want more podcasts? Do you want less podcasts? Get in touch. And um, if, you, um, if you can make a post, if you enjoy the podcast today, if you can make a post and let people know about it, we'd really appreciate it. If you can leave a review on iTunes, if you haven't done already, then we'd really appreciate it. Anything that just helps us grow the podcast, as I mentioned before, the bigger we grow, the, um, the more guests we can have on. Um, I love every single one of the guests that we've had on so far. We've got a lot big world to come. Um, but like some of you guys, some of the requests that we're getting, um, you know, we, we really need to show that these uh, the guests that it's worth their time coming on um, because, you know, like, uh, you know, for Lev to give us an hour of his time then, we'll massively appreciate it. And same with all these other guests. You know, we have to, you know, it's a two-way street. We get to learn from them, but we have to give, uh, have to show there's something in it for them in return as well. So, um, yeah, guys, thank you so much. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode. And love you. Bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout out Teaser. You told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart. You told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart. You said it's not my fault and yeah, I've never done you wrong. I'm grinding to a hope now I can see you're moving on. I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change. You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same. I've got to let you go now, live your life and spread your wings and yeah, you put on quite a show and pull the puppet strings. And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain? Or maybe you should thank me, it's your loss and my gain. I'm leaving now forever, I won't hang my head. And shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted, and you should feel ashamed. You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for. A reason for us all to live and something we could fight for. I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn. But no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle. Yeah, life's hard, I know that. Still wouldn't change shit. I wouldn't go back, yeah. I wouldn't go back. Feelings I hold back. Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose